Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word, and we pray this morning, Lord, as we would uh, engage with your word, with these scriptures, that it would come alive for us. Lord, this isn't just for information's sake, but God, you seek to actually transform lives, to bring healing, to set things right in our world. You do that through your word. Jesus, you do that in our hearts and lives. Do that through the Holy Spirit. And so, God, today we pray that you would open our hearts, our minds and understanding, but also our hands and our feet to do what your work and your word calls us to do today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been walking through the book of Exodus for a a while now, and we're getting closer and closer to the end. And we've been comparing its themes and the the events, what happens in these books, uh, and comparing God's rescue of Israel out of slavery in Egypt very much to Jesus' rescue of us as we come to him by faith, uh, his work on the cross, bringing us out of our slavery to sin and death into freedom. In the same way they walk through the waters of the Red Sea, we walk through the waters of baptism. There's the sense of coming through water into new life. And along the way, both for Israel and for us, we are learning what it means to trust and to follow God and to become part of this great multi-ethnic family uh, in Christ together. People from different tribes and tongues and nations and languages coming together uh, to become agents of God's healing love in the world. And this morning I want to talk about the task and mission that we have, that you have, that I have, to live for Christ in this world. It's our vocation as Christians. And there's a central point about that vocation here in this passage. It's a pivotal chapter. It comes right between what we commonly think of when we think of the book of Exodus, the plagues, the issues in Egypt, Pharaoh, Moses, the Red Sea. Now we're coming to the pivotal chapter at Mount Sinai. And the rest of the book is responding to what God does and says at Mount Sinai in terms of the law, the instructions regarding the tabernacle, then building the tabernacle. But here, right in in chapter 19, Mount Sinai, we get uh, this key moment, God on the mountain. And what I want to do is look at three key themes. I want to talk about, first, God's uh, missional purpose for his people. This is uh, chapter 19, verses 1 to 6, God's missional purpose for us, the task he has for Israel and for us. And then I want to talk about God's majestic presence on the mountain. And thirdly, I want to talk about the marriage proposal. And you may have noticed I've done the J.I. Packer thing. I believe this is a J.I. thing. He used to uh, do alliteration for his sermon points. So here we are. I even got two. Missional purpose, majestic presence, marriage proposal. There we go. So that's it. So anyway, the first one is God's missional purpose. And we'll probably spend the most time here. God saves and rescues Israel and us. God wants to save and rescue you for a reason, for a purpose. And I want to read to you this this key passage for us. Verses 4 and 5 from chapter 19. Listen to what God says. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of 
priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Uh, verse 7, Moses came, called the elders of the people and sat before them, uh, set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And then God says, then I'm going to come. We'll talk about the majestic presence in a moment. But listen, first, Israel is saved to enter into a covenant relationship with God. You get this beautiful image of the eagle uh, rescuing them, bearing them, brought, bringing Israel to himself. And what's so fascinating about this is the call here that if they will indeed obey God's voice, if they will keep the covenant, which is going to be explored in just a moment, if they keep the covenant, they will be a treasured possession among all peoples. The whole earth is the Lord's, but they shall be a kingdom of priests or a holy nation. What's interesting is the kingdom and nation words which you would think would go together, are separated. And the priestly words, the holy and priestliness, are separated so that now nation and priestliness and kingdom and holiness, it's all kind of merging together. The key here is there to become a kingdom of priests. There is a priestly vocation that they are all to have, not just the Levites, but they are a whole nation to be holy, uh, unique in their character, but also to be priests. And this connects directly back to God's promise first given to Abram in Genesis 12, 1 and 3, where he, he tells Abram, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the story of Israel's scriptures flows out of that promise. God promises a childless Abram descendants and a land and a blessing, but perhaps most significantly, they're not to hoard God's blessing, they're to bless the people around them. And now here we are in Exodus, there's descendants for sure, the land is in sight, they're on their way, and now that larger call to priestly mission comes to the forefront. They're to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in short, what that means is there to reflect God's character, his love and his justice to the world as God's representatives, partnering with God in what God is doing in his world, sharing the good news of God's healing love with the world. And what's fascinating about this is the idea of being priests goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. And in the creation story, we discover this, the creation story, if you study it and, and compare it to other creation stories in the ancient Near East at the time, we discover that it's, it's framed and written very much like a temple building project. And so Genesis is framing for its readers that all of the world, all of the cosmos is this one true, good and loving God's sacred space. And God is now entrusting humanity to tend and to care and to rule and to keep it. And so it's subtle, but Genesis 1 and 2 read as God ordaining Adam and Eve to be his priests in the cosmic temple garden. And so the words for work uh, and keep in the garden are actually very similar, if not the same words used in the law to describe the priest's roles. And so it's like the text is inviting us to think about these words, both for sacred service and 
for gardening. All that to say, Adam and Eve are like gardener priests caring for the sacred space. And as they care for it, they are upholding creation. They're preserving the order against the chaotic darkness. And they're reflecting and representing, imaging forth God's heart and character into the world. And they are participating with God in his work in the world. And so all of that priestliness is now coming forward to this moment in Exodus 19. And I love how N.T. Wright frames this. Let me read this short quote from N.T. He says, this vital little passage in Exodus 19, 4 to 6, indicates the subtle and powerful way in which the creator God has chosen to work in his world, not only for his people, but through his people. He's not brought the children of Israel out of Egypt for their own sake alone, though freeing slaves is indeed one of God's special delights, but he set them free in order that they may be the people through whom he will set the world free, free to worship God, free to be fully and gloriously human. And the means by which he will do this is through his word at work in them. Look again at verse 5. If you will obey my voice and keep my commandment, God's word, then you will be my treasure, my royal priesthood. And so N.T.'s point is this, and this is how he summarizes this point. It's the word of God at work in the redeemed people of God that equips them for the mission of God. And this is the sequence in Exodus, in Isaiah, in the New Testament, and in the work and teachings of Jesus himself. The word at work in the people set forth in mission. And N.T.'s absolutely right. He's correct. N.T. Wright is right on this point. And this whole idea gets picked up again by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.9, where he extends this whole theme of priestly vocation to the finished work of Christ now alive in the people of God, the church, where he calls the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And now we are called into that priestly vocation, to be his people on mission and to live that out in a whole myriad of ways in our workplaces and our schools and our homes and in the academy and so on and so forth. So God has rescued Israel and us and called us to live uh, in faith and obedience, to live out of his glory, to live into a missional purpose. And that's the first point again for Israel and for us. There is a vocational task, a priestly vocation to our lives to live out the character of God. And we're going to learn very shortly what God's character actually looks like when we get to the Ten Commandments. So there's a missional purpose, but this missional purpose flows from God's majestic presence. And this is the second point. The people are to consecrate themselves. They're not to just waltz in absent-mindedly into God's presence. In fact, God says if they just sort of run, you know, show up while I am here in my glory, it's not good. We don't just rush carelessly into God's presence because of our sinfulness. And so there's a need there to prepare the people to meet God in a way that's honest about their sinfulness. And our sinfulness is not only just actions we do that aren't great, but it's a, it's a state of, of um, missing the mark of not living as the human people, as, the, as God intends for us to live. And that keeps us from enjoying intimacy with God, keeps us from abiding in his presence. 
And so this is exactly, again, what Jesus has done at the cross. He's defeated the powers that enslave us to sin. And through his blood, he now mediates a new covenant. We can now come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain help in time of need. As Hebrews puts it, we serve God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And we sure see that here in the passage on the mountain. God wants them to know who he is and to understand what sin and holiness are all about. He's the God who delivers them and brings them out. And he is the God of consuming fire. He's the God of grace and mercy and compassion, as well as the God of holiness and justice and power. His love and his majesty come together. Now notice the important gospel pattern for us. God saves them, right? Like the eagle, verse 4. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. He saves them, but now he calls them to follow him. And sometimes we reverse that order. And to reverse that order is actually fatal. It will lead to despair and to loneliness. If we think we have to earn God's law through performance before he saves us, rather, the truth is, is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you and for me, and we can receive that free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ when we repent and believe and come to him by faith. And instead of earning our salvation through works, we come by faith, and now we still live out in obedience to what God has done, not to earn his salvation, but as an act of thank you, to God, a big act of gratitude for what God has done for us. It's a way of saying, thank you. I want to live, Lord, into this life you've called me into. So first, Israel is given a vocational uh, purpose, a missional purpose, this priestly vocation. They encounter then God on the mountain, his majestic presence. And now comes the law. How are they going to actually follow him? And this is the third point. God is making a covenant with them. This is an agreement to life together. And in God's eyes, this covenant is like a marriage proposal. Isaiah 54, 5 says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. Isaiah 62, 5, B says, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so the Bible, God himself, uh, in his word, frames this relationship between himself, between Yahweh and Israel, as like a marriage where God is marrying Israel as his bride. And the Torah, then, God's law, is something like the marriage agreement or the marriage covenant. It talks about how they're going to relate to one another and live together, and they're agreeing together to live in that relationship. Of course, that brings into focus the grief and the pain that God experiences when Israel breaks the relationship. And that's why uh, idolatry is very much adultery. It's very much uh, breaking the marriage relationship that Israel has agreed to keep with God. Listen to how God frames this and is mourning over Israel in Jeremiah 31. He says this, and what notice the, the, the pain of this, but also the hope that God points to here. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. When I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. So you can see it there, this sense of leading Israel out of Egypt, almost like bringing the bride right to the altar and and coming into covenant together. And then Israel breaking that, though God has acted as a faithful husband to them. So here's Yahweh marrying Israel, who will be unfaithful in the marriage. And ultimately, we see this restored and renewed in Jesus. In fact, there are several places where Jesus refers to himself as the groom. And there's, you know, parables and teaching about it. But there's also this sense in which he is the groom come for the people of God with uh, John the Baptist as sort of his best man. And of course, how does the biblical story end? What's the consummation that we look forward to is the bride of Christ, the, the renewed people of God together with Christ being together in covenant in a new and restored heaven and earth, which themselves are married together in Revelation 19, 7 and 9. So the people are brought by Moses forward to the mountain, almost like the bride coming to the altar here. Moses is almost acting as sort of best man. Yahweh's waiting for them. And now the vow of the arrangements is made. In fact, there's almost like an agreement of saying, yes, we will uphold it, which they say uh, in verse eight of chapter 19. Then we get to sort of the law, the covenant itself. And that brings us to the Ten Commandments. I just want to speak very briefly on the Ten Commandments and thinking of them particularly as the way in which we are called, Israel and us are called to live out this priestly vocation that God invites us into. At its basic level, there's two sort of phases to the Ten Commandments. There's loving God in the first four and loving others in the uh, the next six. And that's why Jesus can say that loving God and loving others, loving your neighbor, fulfills and summarizes all the law and the prophets. It's, it's all sort of condensed here into the Ten Commandments. The first four were absolutely unparalleled in the ancient Near Eastern world. This is about exclusive devotion to Yahweh. So there's no room here for atheism uh, or paganism uh, in the sense of polytheism, multiple gods and that sort of thing. And the call is the same for us as Christians. We are called to, to serve God and God alone. We worship Jesus as our Lord. He is Lord of all. And devotion to God in the first four should keep us from breaking the last six. And all of this is again about our priestly vocation that flows out of our relationship with God. Our love for God is reflected in the way we obey his word and love others around us. The first and second commandments speak to the deepest problem in our hearts, which is idolatry, which is exchanging someone or something else in God's place. And this teaches us that only God satisfies the human heart. The third commandment, which is about bearing God's name, is not simply about swearing, using God's name in vain, but we, but about knowing that we represent God. And so as his priest people, we're called to live in a way that honors him. We're bearing his name in how we go about and, and act in life. And so we want to bear his name in a way that uh, is, is in keeping with his character. 
The fourth commandment is about emphasizing rest and worship and remembering God. And there's so much more we could say about Sabbath keeping, but we'll just leave it there for now. And then the next six commandments, again, are all about relationships. So we learn about God's authority uh, through good parents, and therefore we should honor our parents. We know that God's the giver of life, and we reflect that by not murdering others. We take that seriously. We learn that God is faithful and holy, and so we reflect that in sexual purity, uh, avoiding adultery and lust. We learn about uh, God as the provider, and so we don't seek to steal and take things which are other people's, but instead to reflect generosity. We learn about God's truthfulness, and so we're called to reflect his honesty in our words. Uh, we learn about God's goodness and provision, and so we reflect contentment. All of these are a call to live out the character of God, and God pouring himself into them. This isn't just an arbitrary sort of set of rules, but ways to reflect God's heart and how we go about our lives in the world. And of course, the, some of the basic definitions for basic human rights, so sort of upholding the dignity, respect, and value of people uh, are found here in these passages. You don't, you, you don't bring harm to innocent life. Uh, and so, you know, the Christian stance on abortion and euthanasia flows out of God's character and who he is and knowing the importance that people uh, are in God's mind and therefore we are not to interfere with that. We take life very seriously. Of course, the Ten Commandments also, I don't know about you, but they do for me, reveal just the brokenness that I still experience in my own life. The areas that I still, you know, am wrestling with my sinfulness, wrestling with my own uh, desires that I haven't given over to God and sort of realizing again, God, there's, there's more that I need to, to surrender to you. There's more that I need you to be at work in my life. And so reading the Ten Commandments uh, should really, I think, drive us headlong into the arms of Jesus. Because it's in Jesus that we find forgiveness for, for leaving undone that which we ought to have done and doing what we ought not to have done. And it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us as believers today to obey faithfully. Uh, the weight of performance to earn God's character is lifted and instead we can delight in God's law. And if you're, if you're listening to this today and you just feel a sense of guilt or shame about your life and what you've done or what you've been doing, I invite you to come to Christ today and receive his forgiveness and his mercy. Maybe you're a Christian, but you, you are struggling. You just feel the burden of sin. Come to God. Let him remove that burden today. There's a sense of, of living out what God has called us to as a priestly people and, uh, and doing it by seeking to uphold by the power of spirit, these 10 commandments, loving God, and loving our neighbors. So they are called to a missional purpose, a priestly vocation. So are you and I. They're called to encounter the majestic presence of God, the holiness of God on the mountain. And so are you and I. And they're entered, they're called to enter into a marriage proposal, a new life with God. And so are you and I now through Jesus. So for you this week, where are you called to be a priest? Where are you called to live out and represent God's character in the world? How can you spend time living in the presence of God today? Have you taken time to abide in his word, to be in prayer, to just sit and be still in his presence? And which of these 10 commandments hits home for you? Where's the area where you're saying, 
yes, God, that's the, that's the area I need to give to you. Help me to live into this. And at the end of the day, in living our priestly vocation, in knowing the majestic presence of God, and in entering into a marriage proposal, a new life with God, the most important thing is that you remember again that God does love you so much, like a faithful husband to the bride. And I pray that you would know the love and assurance of his grace today. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you do indeed call us. You rescue us out of sin and death. You lead us by the hand into new life. And then at that place, Lord, you invite us to change, to be transformed, to put away our sin, to be washed clean, to become a new creation, to to quite literally wake up out of uh, the sleep we've been in. And so God, today, would you wake us up? Wake us up to the priestly vocation we have. Wake us up to a hunger for your presence and an intimacy with you, Jesus. Wake us up to live the life you've called us to, to put aside sinful habits and behaviors, and by the power of your spirit, walk in boldness and newness of life. And with brothers and sisters around the world and through the ages, we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.